0: There we go. Happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas, kind of in that in-between weekend here of all that delicious food settling in. Right now it's kind of finding its way, all that goodness uh, settling into your belly. Right now as we finish off Thanksgiving, our family had a a good time together. We were with uh, my wife's family. They're sitting right up here in the the front two rows over here just to totally draw attention to them uh, right here. And it's actually... My mother-in-law's birthday today, and she wanted me to tell you that. Just kidding. She did not. She did not want that at all. So I used to be the favorite. I'm not anymore. So uh, because of that. Uh, but uh, happy birthday to you. But we had a good time. I made a, a horrible mistake though this weekend. Please don't do this. Okay. But I, I need to just tell you this. Get it off my chest here. On Friday night at 6:30, I went to Bell Square. Who does that? It's like Snowflake Lane kickoff night, Christmas tree light-up night, and about 50,000 people in one mall. And uh, my son drew out a basketball practice, and I was like, I guess I'll go to the mall. And I, it, immediately, I was like, I should not have made this decision. But, uh, but there was all these thousands and thousands of people shopping for Christmas. I didn't see any of you there, by the way. You guys are the smart ones uh, who, didn't, who didn't show up. But we're we're headed towards the end of the year, headed towards Christmas and we're excited here at Redemption Hill that we want to make the most of Christmas, uh, season that it is to celebrate the birth of Jesus, to have our mindset right with that and hopefully we can help you have the right mindset as as we work our way towards that and towards the end of the year uh, together. So um why don't you for now though, open up your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. We are studying this incredible book that we started last January, and taking chunks at a time, taking verses at a time, and uh, we're going to study verse 7 this morning, but I want to read 1 Peter 4, chapter chapter 4, verses 7, all the way down to verse 11 to set the context for the morning. It says this, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards, of good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter starts with the topic of prayer. And it's prayer as it relates to persecution, prayer as it relates to the end times. And I need to say this from the start. Whenever there's a message on prayer, and I was told this in seminary, to uh, so forewarn your people when you do a message on On prayer, that it usually comes across as very convicting. Um, And that was what I felt this week that I don't pray enough, that I need to pray more, uh, that my prayers aren't good enough, or that uh, in all, there's this feeling of I could do better in prayer. And my guess is that whenever the word prayer is said from the pulpit, immediately is I need to do better in prayer. And that's a good thing. That's the challenge that Peter has for us. And I want you to know that we're all in this together when it comes to our prayer life and our personal prayer life. And he says here this, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And the word there for prayer, it is this, the sense of being immediately before God in adoration, devotion, and worship. So when you think of prayer, you're thinking of the act of worship and communion before God. Oftentimes, we think of prayer as being a time where Jesus is kind of like this uh, genie. Uh, God is like this genie in a bottle where if you rub it the right way, the, the God pops out and you get three wishes. You can ask him for whatever you want. He's going to grant you those wishes. Oftentimes, we think of prayer as a, we pray only in times of need and we pray only in times of trouble. When Peter here is talking about prayer and he says, for the sake of your prayers... He is talking about a time of devotion and adoration and dependence on God as an act of worship. You're communing with God. And some of the closest times that we have with God should be in that time of prayer with him. Should be in that time of prayer with him. Prayer has always been a staple of even America. America has always seen prayer because of our First Amendment right that we have to freedom of speech, to be able to pray, to be able to pray in public, to be able to pray in private, to be able to pray around a dinner table, to be able to pray in a, a cafeteria at the workplace, to be able to pray wherever you want. Well, in 2015, I sure some of you know this story, a man, a, a coach, a football coach by the name of Joe Kennedy would go after each high school football game as one of the coaches to the 50-yard line, kneel down and pray. And it was an optional time where players could come and join him, and players would come and join him and pray. Well, in 2015, Joe Kennedy was fired because he prayed on school grounds. Joe Kennedy, exercising his 1st Amendment right to pray in public, Took him almost seven years, which leads us up to 2022, and finally it made its way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that this was unconstitutional. Did we ever think that there would come a time when Christians would be targeted for praying in public? Do we ever think there would come a time where in America, where Christians would be the target of persecution because of our desire to pray before the living God, worship the living God in the public square? We shouldn't be surprised by this because even in our Bibles, we can go all the way back and remember the story in Daniel chapter 6, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. In Daniel chapter 6, there's a king named Darius. And Darius' counselors all around him came to him and said, hey, there's this man Daniel who prays. Let's set up an ordinance that says you cannot pray. You can't pray to any other God. Only to King Darius could you Did you offer up any sort of worship or pray? And and King Darius said, okay, I'll sign that petition. I'll sign that ordinance. He did. That didn't stop Daniel. In fact, it says in Daniel chapter six and verse 11 that he continued to pray as was his custom three times a day. He'd stand in front of, he'd kneel in front of the window facing towards Jerusalem and continue to pray. Christians have always been persecuted for this shouldn't be a surprise. Ended up where Daniel would be thrown into the lion's den because of it. Reminds us of this, the persecution, the hardship that will come upon Christians for simply wanting to worship. And this was true even two years ago when the church was told they could no longer meet. And an ordinance was passed for the church not to meet anymore. And not only that, churches were not allowed to sing anymore. This should come as no surprise, but it reminds us of this, of the persecution that there is among Christians. And this was true even in the time of Peter, because in this time, in the context of this, when this letter was written, this letter was written to people who were under King Nero, Emperor Nero. And Emperor Nero was a wicked, evil man who persecuted Christians, targeted Christians. He was even the one who said that Christians were responsible to the fire in Rome. When it was Most likely Nero who started the fire to wipe out a third of the city so that he could rebuild the structures himself and get the glory for rebuilding Rome. And he needed a scapegoat and he used the Christians. Christians have always been hated in this way. Nero burned them at the stake. Nero would impale them at parties and light them, light them up as torches in his gardens, to make sure people knew that being a Christian meant persecution. Being a Christian meant being criticized. Being a Christian means that you're going to be verbally assaulted for your faith. And this was what Peter was telling his readers. And he comes to verse 7, he says this, The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then he gives his readers three ways by which they're to live out the Christian life. Three ways by which they're to live out the Christian life. And the first one is this, keep loving one another earnestly, show hospitality to one another, and serve one another. Peter simplifies down the Christian life to these three things. This is what I need you to do in the midst of hardship and persecution. And if targeting comes your way, continue to do these three things, love one another, show hospitality, open up your home to one another, and serve one another. But the foundation for all of those things, or those three things, the foundation for all of those, you can see it right there, the foundation of all of that is in verse 7, that you would be a prayerful person. The foundation of that is prayer. Foundation for living in the light of the end times is this, the priority of prayer. Now notice with me this. It says there, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now he could say this, the end of all things is at hand, therefore get out there and go evangelize the lost. He could say the end of all things is at hand, The end of all things is near. Christ is going to return. Therefore, meet up together and just have a time of fellowship with one another. Hang out with other believers. Hide away in your house. Go run to the mountain and hide. Jesus is about to return, but he doesn't say any of those things. He says this, the end is near. Go and pray. The priority is prayer. The first thing I need you to do is to start your day, to start your weeks with the priority of prayer before you go out and try to love one another, before you go out and try to show hospitality to one another, before you go out and serve one another. The foundation for all of that, the priority of all that, is that you start your day with prayer. And then that launches you into action. Before anything else, this is what we're to do believer, how often do we skip this priority to pray because we have so many things to do in our life? There's so many things going on, so many good things going on, so many wonderful things going on, so many troubles that could go on. And we decide by saying, you know what, I think I'll cut out my prayer today and I'll I'll just kind of go for it. It's kind of like, hey, I'll just kind of put God to the side, of my prayers to side, I'm just going to go for it today. I got so much going on, I just, I just got to go and I, I just got to do, I don't have time to just stop and, and ask of the Lord, I don't have time to prioritize prayer today, I've got, I've got so many things going on, but yet we want to see a change in our marriage, yet we want to see change in our schools, we want to see change in our kids, we want to have a transformed life, we want to see, see growth in our life. We want to see circumstances change. We want want all these things to happen, but yet we decide in that moment that it's not going to happen through prayer. It's going to happen through me just going and doing. I got so much to get done. Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, a reformer, was asked by a friend one time, Say, hey, what, what's your plans for tomorrow? And Martin Luther said, I'm going to work. I'm going to work from early in the morning till late at night. In fact, this is what he says. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I have so much to do that I better get up a little bit earlier to start praying. The priority becomes Prayer priority of our day is that we'd start off the day communing with God, that we would start out the day seeking the face of God before that we seek the face of friends. That we'd seek the face of our Savior then we would seek the face of those we go to work with. We have so much to do. We have so much going on and we can all say in this time of life, and this this next month or so of of life, we've got a lot going on, don't we? But what's the priority for you? What if it was that we actually took just this verse, 1 Peter 4, 7, we took it out, we wrote it down, and we plastered it on our foreheads, and we actually lived by it? What if it actually simmered in our hearts enough to motivate us to say, you know what, I need to start today in prayer. I got so much going on. got so many things, relationally things are going wrong. Things are sideways. I I better start out with more time in prayer, not say, hey, I'm going to cut this out and I'm just going to go for it today on my own. And I believe this. I believe this because this is what the Bible tells us. I believe this to be true, that if you spend your day in prayer, if you spend your day communing with God, it is going to make you a better husband. It is going to make you a better wife. It is going to make you a better friend. It is going to make you a better aunt, a better uncle. It is going to make you a better a better coworker. You are going to be a better evangelist. You are going to love one another. You are going to serve one another. You are going to show hospitality to one another, because you have sought the Lord out in prayer, in worship, and adoration, and communion with him that everything else in your life will be spiritually better because you started out with prayer. Everything. doesn't mean there won't be hardship and trials and persecution in your life, but it means you'll, be, you'll know how to handle it. You'll be able to make wise decisions. It doesn't mean that all, the day, all of a sudden your days will be greater and are wonderful. But it does mean that when those hardships come up, you'll are better equipped to know how to handle the day. Because you started it out, giving it all to the Lord, casting your cares on Him. And so Peter says this, the end of all things is at hand. You must prioritize prayer. Now, I want you to show you this. Peter gives this to us. He gives us two aspects of prayer here in verse 7. If you thought we were going to make it all the way to verse 11... We're not. We're not even going to make it to verse eight. We're just going to look at verse seven. There's two aspects of prayer I want you to notice in this verse. Number one is this, the motivation to pray. And then I want to give you the mindset to pray. The motivation to pray and then the mindset to pray. First of all, the motivation. He says this, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is Is at hand. What does that mean? The word end there, it could mean this the termination of something or the ceasing of something where where time stops. It's the end of time. But that Greek word there for end doesn't mean that. In fact, it's never used that way in the New Testament of a temporary end or a chronological end as if something stops. Rather, the Greek word here for end, the end of all things, that that word there has the idea of of consummation or fulfillment, where something is realized. It's a culmination of time that reaches a goal. So we're coming to the end of a goal. We're coming to the end where that goal would be realized. And for the Christian and for the believer, we understand this. According to God's word, we understand that the culmination of time reaches its goal When Jesus Christ returns to the earth, it reaches its climax where God brings his people together and redeems his people. He comes back to earth and and, and in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, as we'll read, God redeems his people. And that's what he's talking about. He's saying this, there will come a time when Jesus Christ will return to the earth. This isn't the first time that Peter's talked about this. He's alluded to heaven and even to the revelation of Jesus Christ all the way back in chapter 1. In verses 4, all the way down to verse 7, he's talking about this inheritance that's in heaven for us. At the end of verse 7, it says that we may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, in verse 13, it says this, that, uh, that we are to be preparing our minds for action, to be sober-minded, to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is telling us that there's going to be a moment when Jesus Christ will return, and that moment is imminent. It can happen at any time. That moment there is at hand. Talking about the eminency of Christ's return, that Christ Christ can return at the daytime, he can return at the nighttime. He could return today or tomorrow or next month. He could return when we're at play. He could return when we're at work. He can return while we're sitting in the carpool line ready to pick up kids in a business meeting, in a Zoom meeting, whatever it is, at any moment, Christ could return. It's imminent. It's at hand. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24 and verse 36. Christ will return, and what Peter wants us to do is live in the expectancy that Jesus Christ will return. We expect it, and we live in light of that. Let me show you this in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at your Bibles in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. It talks about the return of Jesus Christ. Christ came once, that's Christmas. The birth of Jesus Christ. And Christ will come, come again, first time as a, a baby, the second time as a conquering king. First Corinthians 15, it says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead Will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment. Look over with me in First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter four, and verse sixteen. Verse thirteen, it says, "This we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, that those who are asleep." that you may not grieve as others do and have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. At any moment, Jesus Christ should return and is going to return and and we need to live in expectation of that. But we don't do that, do we? We're, We're not good at that. Our eyes are so horizontal at things going on, and and there's so many tasks to accomplish and so many things to do that our eyes aren't looking heavenward at that moment when Christ will return. But that's what Peter wants us to do. He wants us to, to live with our eyes heavenward, knowing that Christ is going to return, and we live in light of that moment with that expectation. There's times, it's not often, thankfully, but there's times when, when Aaron will go away and leave, leave me in charge of the home. It's not ever, doesn't ever work out well, but um, I am there with the boys and with Grace. And it, thankfully, it's only for a couple of days because it doesn't take long for a house to get messy, only a few moments where there's backpacks just laying everywhere. Like I, we feel like we're, we're like a, a house of backpacks, They're just everywhere. There's like random socks. I'm like, whose sock is this? And why isn't it paired with the other one? I mean, well, what's going on here? There's, there's dishes everywhere, right? It doesn't take long for the house to get messy after a few days. And we know this, that Aaron's going to return. She's gonna return back to the house. And there's an expectation, a good one and a fair one, that the house is going to be cleaned up before she gets back. So we're left with an option. We can either clean as we go, right? Clean as we go. Or we wait until the last moment when we know she's going to return on that day, in that hour, in that moment. We know we have a certain amount of time to get everything cleaned up before she arrives. I'll let you decide what the Pemberthys do in that moment. A or B? B, for sure. I won't even let you think about it. It is B. Absolutely. We wait. And we clean up as fast as we can everything and get it as if we lived the entire time she was gone clean. She knows better than that. The same is true for Christ's return. We don't know when, whether it's next week or in a month or in a year or in five years or in 20 years, if we knew when Christ returned, we would all wait. Don't kid yourself. We would all wait until that last moment. We'd clean up our lives. We'd get things right with Christ because in the next moment, in the next day, in the next year, Christ was going to return. That is why we are not told when Christ is going to return. And so we have to choose, what are we going to do? How are we going to live our lives? Are we going to live our lives in such a messy way that, that, we, that, we, that, we, that it doesn't matter because Christ is going to return? So what? Do we live our lives and say, hey, I'll start loving my wife tomorrow. I'll start loving my husband tomorrow. I'll start investing in my kids tomorrow. I'll just keep waiting and waiting and waiting. Or do we say this? No, Christ could return. He may come back, and He's going to take inventory on my heart and on my life. He's going to evaluate how it is that I was a steward of all the things that He's given to me. And we live in that in that moment of saying, "Hey, Christ is going to return. I need to get my life right. I need to get my marriage right. I'm not going to wait until my deathbed." I may not even get to a deathbed. I'm going to start doing this today. Just this week, sitting in my office, having a meeting with our, with our staff up there, and the two motorcycles come up over here, policemen come up over there. On Monday, Monday morning, I looked out the window. I was like, oh, there's this police guys again. Two of them turn the corner, make their way down, and one of them, bang. That was it. Officer Jordan passes away. Just like that. I mean, I literally said, look at those two cops. out!" I mean, all of us looked out the window at him. The last left-hand turn he would make. So tragic. It's so sad. Next thing I hear, minutes later, sirens. And I'm thinking, wow, that's odd. We just don't know. We just don't know. Why are we waiting? What are you waiting for? We need to make our lives right with Christ. You say, how do I do that? This is what you do. The first thing you do is you bend your knee before the Lord and you go to prayer. That's the first thing you do. That's what Peter's saying. You go before the Lord and you pray to him. The end is at hand. Okay, priority number one, pray. That's what Peter wants you to know. that's the motivation. We sing this song, one of my favorite songs, it is well with my soul. And in the last verse, it says this, the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. I just want to ask you, church, is it well with your soul if Christ returns? Would it be well? In good conscience before the Lord, can you say that? motivated because we know at any moment Christ can return. The end of all things is at hand. Okay, then he gives us the mindset. What's the mindset we're to have? Well, it tells us two words there. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded. What for the sake of your prayers? Self-controlled, what does that mean? It means this, that you have the attitude and the thinking that you're to have is you're to be self-controlled. A self-controlled mind. It's in the aorist imperative meaning this, there's a sense of urgency. You curb your passions you habitually rein in your passions and your desires. You guard the mind. You protect the mind. You, you keep it clear. You fix your mind on Jesus Christ. You have self-discipline in your passions. You have self-discipline in your thinking. You have self-discipline in your purity. You don't let your mind just run wild thinking about whatever it wants to think about. You rein those things in. And it's true. And I know this by experience. When we go to pray and we get everything right, we say, I'm going to have a moment to pray. It's quiet. I'm going to have a moment to pray. And right when you start, immediately your mind just goes wild. You're just like, why am I thinking about things I haven't thought about since college? like where did that even come from? Why am I start thinking about things that are like two months out or, or things that happened yesterday? Like, why is my mind? Because there's that battle within the mind, whether or not you're going to have the self-control to go out and pray to the Lord. And you have a self-controlled mind. Paul told Colossians this, to, to take every thought captive don't allow your thoughts to run wild and run loose as, as if they just have free reign within your mind. You have a self-controlled mind. It's guarded, it's protected, it's clear, it's fixed on holy things. Your priorities are right. You understand what's going into your mind to influence your thinking, which is going to influence your behavior. And you've got a grid up that is saying, this is allowed in, this is, this is not. And you're self-controlled in that way. I'll show you one more passage in Romans chapter 13 which speaks to this thing, this very idea of living our life with a self-controlled mind, with our actions under control, with our lives under control. Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, it says this, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you To wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believe the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Same, Same idea. The day is at hand. So what do we do? Cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensualities, not in quarreling and jealously, but we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We make no provision for the flesh. And so gratify its desires. And so we do battle. If we want to have a thoughtful prayer life, we want to have a meaningful prayer life. We do battle in the mind, and we control our mind. It's under control. Thoughts aren't allowed to just run wild. Secondly, is this not only is First Peter does Peter tell us to be self-controlled? He also tells us to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded, what does that mean? It means this: that you take eternal things seriously that you take eternal things seriously, you're sober about them. You approach life with a a sobriety to it, a reverence to it. You understand that this is a short life and eternity is forever, and you make decisions in this life based on what will affect your eternity. And you're sober-minded in your prayers. You're serious about the matter for which we will one day be answerable to God. In fact, at the end of chapter 4 and verse 6, he talks about this very thing in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 4 that we're going to give an account before the Lord Jesus Christ. And we understand that and remember that and we become those who are self-controlled and sober-minded to the point where it affects the way that we pray and if we pray and how we pray. It says there, for the sake of your prayers, that word prayers there is plural. It indicates this, that this is a repeated pattern of your life. So now becomes the habit of your life. Over and over again, you start your day committed to the Lord. There's a sobriety to it. There's a reverence to it. It's self-controlled. You think clearly about it. You're motivated by the fact that at any moment, Jesus Christ can return. And so you go before the Lord and you start your life and you live your life underneath that worship and devotion to him every single day. That's what he wants. And let me tell you this too. If that is you, if that becomes you, you will be a powerful instrument for the Lord. And the one that Satan targets is not the one who doesn't pray. The one who Satan targets is the one who does pray. Because we know this in James chapter 5, it says this, that the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Satan's not concerned about large churches that don't pray. He's concerned about small churches that do pray. He's not concerned about marriages that aren't praying. He's concerned about the marriages that are praying. He's not concerned about the the detached father and husband that doesn't pray. He's concerned about the one who is praying. That's who Satan's concerned about is the one who is praying. Because a man of prayer is a powerful tool in the hands of the living God. So Peter wants us to understand that. Peter wants us to start our days with that. The Apostle Paul says this, Devote yourselves to prayer in Colossians 4.2. Jesus said this in Luke 21.36, Stay awake at all times praying that you would have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of God. This was the model of Jesus. When things were the toughest for Jesus, what did he want to do? The night that he was betrayed, what did he do? Where did he go? He went and he did what? he prayed. In fact, his prayers are so intense that the Bible tells us that his sweat turned into drops of blood. That's what you do. That's where you go. You model the life of Jesus Christ who would separate himself from people and live his life in dependence of Jesus Christ and worship of Jesus Christ. And one of those beautiful chapters in all the Bible, John 17 came out of it. The high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. It must be the priority of our life. When it becomes a priority of our life, then what Peter asks us to do in the simplicity of the Christian life, these three things, it becomes what we want to do. We start praying like this, then what, we're gonna, what are we going to want to do? We're going to want to love one another. We're going to want to open up our homes without grumbling to one another. And we're going to want to serve in the church. Because we set our hearts right before the Lord, going before him and praying, and casting our cares upon him because he cares for us. It sets the tables then for our action as believers, knowing that the end of all things is at hand. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as I, as I mentioned earlier, just as we opened, that these sermons on prayer always had a bit of conviction and maybe even a little bit of shame to the ways that we haven't prayed like you ask us to. And we're all in that boat together. We can all rise up to the challenge that Peter has for us to have the right mindset of prayer, to right, to have the right motivation to pray, to be reminded of the fact that at any moment and at any time, you can return to redeem those who believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord. And we don't know the hour, we don't know the day, but we know this. That today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to make things right. Today is the day that we come before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, offering our prayers and petitions to him. With a sober mind. With a self-controlled mind. And Lord, there's so many things that we want to get done, even this afternoon. There's so many things this week has for us. We got to buy gifts. We got to clean the house. We got to decorate. We got to do this. We got to do that. Lord, help us to make the priority of our life prayer, and that those things actually aren't as important as prayer is. Those things actually aren't as important as communing with the living God. Starting our day there, getting the right focus, the right mindset. And then going out and starting our day. And Lord, I pray that you would bless those who commit to that. That we would be a church who commits to that. We would encourage one another in that. And that we would be known by the fact that the foundation of Redemption Hill Bible Church is prayer. And everything that's built upon that rests on that practice, that spiritual discipline of prayer. So help us, Lord, to even commit to that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.